Today is April 7th, 2022, and welcome to The Regimen, where public health pharmacists, pharmacy students, and their guests discuss the latest public health issues relevant to all healthcare providers, their patients, and policymakers. Listen to find out how pharmacists and pharmacy students like me can improve population health, health equity, and patient care through advocacy and education. My name is Sabrina Silvera, and I'm a last-year pharmacy student at the University of Rhode Island working with the Rhode Island Department of Health alongside my professor, Dr. Bratberg. Thanks, Sabrina. I'm Jeff Bratberg. I'm a clinical professor of pharmacy practice at the College of Pharmacy and the academic collaborations officer at the Department of Health. And today we are thrilled to welcome Karen Ernst, executive director at Voices for Vaccines, to the regimen to discuss vaccine misinformation and how people can find credible vaccine information to build vaccine confidence. So welcome, Karen. We're very excited to have you here today. So please introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thank you so much. It's great to be here. As you said, I'm the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines, and we are a family-led organization that really promotes those family-to-family conversations about vaccines. Uh, I always tell people that we are the regular people who are interested in vaccines, not the science people who are interested in vaccines. And uh, I come from a regular person's space. I actually used to be a high school English teacher and wound up here alongside all sorts of interesting people who are interested in vaccines and in building vaccine confidence in their communities. So thanks for having me. It sounds like you had a very different background before getting involved with Voices for Vaccines. What kind of led you from that shift from being a teacher to all of this public health work that you do now? It was really an accident. Um, It was actually a series of accidents. (laughs) So I was on a very extended maternity leave and I had a 10 day old infant who accompanied me to his brother's preschool classroom. The next day we got a call from the the receptionist at the preschool telling me that we had all been exposed to chicken pox while at preschool and that it was a big deal and that I should call our pediatrician. I was fortunate that the 10 day old didn't get chicken pox. I attribute that mostly to the fact that his older brother was vaccinated against chickenpox, so didn't bring it home and subject subject us all to ongoing disease. Um, But when the child who had exposed my family came back to school, I said to the mother, oh, that's so strange that you got chickenpox. Didn't your kid get the vaccine? And she said, no, that one's not important. And I sort of looked at my days old baby in my arms thinking, wow, but it was important to me. So it was sort of from there that I started noticing that vaccine hesitancy was real and existed in the actual physical world around me. And at some point sort of fell down the rabbit hole as it were, and ended up meeting Dr. Deborah Wexler, who was then the uh, executive director of the Immunize Action Coalition. And she sort of brought me into Voices for Vaccines that way. Thank you for sharing that. That's a very important story because I'm sure we're all very impacted by everyone else's choices and especially when it comes to vaccines. And I'm sure we've all learned this even more in the past couple of years with the COVID-19 pandemic that's 
hard to escape. And like as a pharmacy student and someone who's vaccinated, you know, hundreds of people, you've I've had those people who really just don't want a vaccine, whether that's their flu vaccine, their pneumonia vaccine, or a COVID vaccine. It sometimes it's hard to make that decision and hard to hear people spread something that you know isn't true. Um, and like you said, like saying that that one vaccine wasn't important, that was very important to you and your little infant. Like it's hard for people to, I think, outside the realm of just you and what you think is important versus what's important for public health. So it's a very interesting thing that kind of led you to voices for vaccines, so. Absolutely. Do I get to tell my chicken pox story? So yeah, I have, of course. I, I have two stories here. It's a little unscripted here. So the first patient I ever saw as a pharmacy student uh, at the on the inpatient service at the Mayo Clinic there in, in Minnesota uh, was a was a twenty year old of chickenpox who died of their disease. And I was like, "Are you kidding me? This is a thing where people die." And that was interesting because a few years before, I worked in Greg Poland's vaccine research group, uh, which is also at the Mayo Clinic. I'm sure, Karen, you know Greg, uh, Dr. Poland. Um, someone I will never call Greg ever again, but Dr. Poland, uh, <laughs> working in his lab. And so I've always been sort of in, in science and promotion. And I remember I worked that the year the chickenpox vaccine was approved, I, my assignment was to talk about it. And we gave this talk to a bunch of people. And I talked about how great it was and how wonderful it was. And somebody stood up and said, isn't this killing people? Or isn't the vaccine worse? Isn't the disease something we all get? And why do we need a vaccine for it? So I remember in like my very, very early career hearing, you know, similar people and then hearing Dr. Poland, you know, who himself at that time was also surprised to hear, we just told you how great this was and better than the disease and how bad the disease was, what's going on. So it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, it's one of those things that I think people really have a hard time grasping. People in general, everywhere in the world, overgeneralize their personal experience to everything else. So my personal chicken box experience was I had an incredibly mild case. My parents were busy working, so I got to spend the week at my grandparents' house. We watched the Thunderbirds. I got to eat like all manner of junk food. It was great. But then actually when I was an English teacher, we had a student who was 14 years old and got chicken pox. And by the end of the week, he had died. And I remember, you know, I was about 23 years old thinking to myself, you can die from chicken pox. Like you don't just go hang out at your grandparents' house and watch the Thunderbirds. But it's one of those things that's really hard for humans to learn that not everyone has the same experiences. And that when we're looking at public health, we really are looking at that whole experience that the that human beings can have and sort of the general based risk versus benefit analysis. So if you were talking to me about risks versus benefits, you know, I'd be like, I don't know, I, I, I would have hated to have missed out on that week of my life. At the same time, I would prefer that the 100 people a year who did succumb to chickenpox or the 10,000 people a year who were hospitalized for, from it wouldn't have had to suffer from it and someday if i get shingles i sure as heck won't be waxing poetic about chicken pox at all really interesting thing about it reminds me of 
like when I was younger, my mom got chicken pox like in her 40s because we went to a cousin's birthday party. He got exposed by someone from school. I'm not sure how he got it. He was vaccinated, but he still got chicken pox. And my mom in her 40s got chicken pox and was like down for the count for a couple of weeks. Like she was really under the weather. And like, you don't think about someone in their 40s getting chicken pox. Like it's kind of strange, but that's my experience with it because I never had it. But I remember being little and like going out with my dad and my brother because my mom was home because she was really sick. And it's strange to me to think that like, I didn't get this because of a vaccine, but my mom could have been so sick from it. And she was, it's hard to imagine that like my mom would have made the choice to not vaccinate me. Like that blows my mind, but I'm vaccinated. Thankfully, my parents are very big into science and vaccinating their children, thankfully. And it's something they've passed down to me and something that I really care about as a pharmacy student and a future pharmacist. I think it's like very important that we all continue to like spread this information and like share to correct like whatever misinformation that we hear. So what would you say to like student pharmacists like me or people out in the community and people in practice to encourage them to participate in correcting vaccine misinformation? It's become even bigger now. It's it's really hard for people to step outside their comfort zone and disagree with someone. It feels disagreeable to disagree. And for pharmacists, it's particularly important because most people see their pharmacists a lot more than they see their primary care doctors. Uh, it's It's just the case that we end up getting a lot of our medical advice from pharmacists, even though a lot of times people I hate to say this, don't think a lot about pharmacists. Not me. I think a lot about pharmacists. They're my favorite. So a pharmacist really is sort of the line between, you know, all sorts of medical compliance, including vaccine acceptance. It's it's hard for anyone who is in a professional position to have that, that sort of time needed to help somebody work through concerns and questions about vaccines. Because it really does take time. It really does require some listening and some understanding. But I think even if we don't have a ton of time, there are certain things that pharmacists can do, you know, sort of at, at the window when a vaccine's being offered or when a question comes up. And that really is to, you know, a- ask a follow-up question or two that's open-ended. You know, can you tell me more about that? Or, you know, which side effects are you worried about? Th- those sorts of things. And then to really affirm a person's ability to have their own decision-making respected and to ask questions when needed. You know, I'm, I'm glad you're here asking these questions. And ultimately, it's going to be up to you whether or not to get this vaccine. And that's a hard thing for people to say because it's true. Because we'd really like to say instead, I'm going to give you all the facts and then you're really going to want it. So let's just get this over with. But the truth of the matter is that no matter what you say to the person, if they decide to walk away and not get a vaccine, that's up to them. You you can't force that to not happen. And so you might as well be upfront. You know, whether or not you get this, it's up to you. And then ask permission to share information with someone. So, you know, those are good questions. 
Uh, I'm glad you're here talking about this today. And ultimately, you'll get to decide whether or not to vaccinate. With your permission, I'd like to share with you some of the information I have on your questions. Would that be okay with you? Um, the worst thing they'll say is no. <laughs> and then guess what? You didn't waste any time on them. But with good luck, they'll, you know, getting their permission will sort of open them up a little bit to listening to it. Uh, it'd be great if you could have a long conversation with them, but maybe what happens is they walk away and then the next month when they're back for their refill, they've had some time to think about it and they see your face and you're like, hey, did you, did you give any thought to that pneumococcal vaccine? So th that's something that can happen. The other thing I think that's important for pharmacists to do, which through this podcast you're already doing, is to be a little bit of a public voice. People, generally speaking, trust pharmacists. You know, we they're just there available to give you free information. It's so wonderful. I don't have to make an appointment ahead of time to go walk up to my pharmacist and say, hey, I've got a question about this this drug. This is the a pharmacist is the first person that taught me about homeopathic medicine and why not to buy it. You know, I said, hey, does this do anything? And they said, you don't even know what's in that. All of that's meaningless. And I said, OK, I guess I won't buy it. Uh, so, and I, I trusted that pharmacist and, and didn't buy it. You know, a pharmacist is also the person who, when I accidentally gave away my prescription, you know, when they used to come in slips to a homeless person on the side of the road and then ended up in the pharmacy, my pharmacist was the person who knew what to do next. People trust their pharmacists. And so being that person who people will see you on a regular basis, even if you don't recognize them, it is really great. Just the reminder of your face of somebody who is open and willing to hear them out and to offer information but not force it, I think is really important. But also to be the person who can be public in this realm, to be on social media, to say things, to you know go ahead and, and say yes to speaking engagements, to go out there and you know, write your letters to the editor, to call when your local news station does a real stinker of a story and, you know, you'd like to offer them that they could do something differently and be more science-based. I think sort of being activists in that realm is really important for pharmacists and does a lot in promoting good information about vaccines. Thank you. That was really impactful. I think everything you said is so correct. And as someone who's experienced this and had those conversations with patients, I remember very vividly sitting down with this one woman who's very, very nervous about getting a vaccine. And I was able to take the time and ask her, what questions do you have about the vaccine? And how can I make you more comfortable with getting it? And luckily, I work in a small community pharmacy. So I had the time to sit down and talk to her and kind of, kind of like ease her fears a little bit and make it a little easier for her to ask her questions and have someone as a resource there. And now every couple of weeks when I see her coming in the pharmacy, I get a, like a wave and a hello and how's your family doing? And it's really nice to build that relationship with your patients. And I think, like you said, with pharmacists being so accessible, we see our patients at least once a month, every couple of months, and we see you more than your primary care physician or another doctor does. So it's really nice to have that relationship and like that rapport with people and 
be able to have those like personal conversations and then ask them, oh, what do you think about this vaccine? Or you're coming up on this one being due. How do you feel about that? And you can like schedule things ahead and kind of put that thought in their mind, like, oh, you're almost 50. You might be due for a shingles vaccine. And one thing I make those conversations. One recommendation I would give is that when you see that someone's due for a vaccine, don't ask them in an open-ended way for their opinion about it, right? Yeah. Um, if, if they offer their opinion, then you can start asking questions. But if they're due for something, say, hey, look, you're due for a shingles vaccine. Are you ready to schedule that now? Or, you know, I'm available. You want to do it now? I've, I've gotten more flu shots that way. And I'm a person who seeks out flu shots. Just the pharmacist <laughs> saying, hey, you're here. You want to get a flu shot? And it's like, Sure. You know, like, here perfect. I am. Super yeah. convenient. So you really want to make that that positive recommendation where, hey, you're due for this. It's a good thing to do. Let's let's do it. Um, but you, you want to be careful that uh, we're not opening up opinions, because once you say to someone, what do you think about getting this vaccine today? They're like, oh, I'm supposed to think something. I haven't thought about thinking something. I'm going to maybe I should go Google it. And then and then all hope can be lost right there. Yeah, that Googling and looking up everything online is kind of what spreads all of this misinformation we've been hearing about. And that's such a big buzzword right now, like misinformation. It's been in the news, it's been in the media, it's online. I'm sure people hear it almost every day. And with COVID being as big as it is, misinformation has been spreading like crazy. But misinformation has been something that's been around for a long time. And as people in healthcare and people like you who are activists and spreading positive information, we're doing our best to share all of this correct, incredible information. Even though misinformation isn't a brand new thing, it's older than healthcare, I'm sure. But we're trying to do what we can to correct misinformation and social media and Googling and WebMD and all of that. I'm not sure if I can say that on air, but <laughs> if we can look at all of this and see that as, oh, it could be a negative thing. What kind of spin can we put on it to make it more positive and spread all of this accurate and trusted information to people who have these questions? Right. And, you know, when we're looking at misinformation or even even more daunting is disinformation. Uh, and I think people are really starting to notice disinformation around them with everything that's going on in Ukraine, especially right now, it's sort of, it's, it's sort of easier to spot at the moment. It's not always easy to spot it, but when, when we're looking at the spread of misinformation it can be very daunting to think, well, what, what can I do about this other than get into Twitter arguments with people all the time. And, and that's where I think it, it is important to have a plan for yourself, that it doesn't have to be an argument, that you can take the same principles you would take talking to somebody in person and extend those to an online conversation, that we can still be human beings with each other, even if there's the internet between us. And so we can still ask more questions to learn more about where a person's concerns lie. We can still affirm their rights to make their own decisions and you know affirm the the goodness of asking questions and then we can get that permission to share what we know 
even if we're on Twitter, even if we're on Facebook, those those principles still hold that when we treat people like human beings and we really interact with them in a way that can help ease their concerns, that, that that's helpful. The, the problem, of course, we get into is a lot of times with algorithms, the way that they are online, that misinformation is primarily delivered to one group of people incredible information is delivered to a different group of people and so we're not even operating by the same playbook at all we're not even speaking the same language at all unless you know you're someone like me who actually actively seeks out what sorts of misinformation is going around i don't recommend that it's you know if you're getting paid to do it it's fine it's not a a healthy part of a, a person's life but that's why we could end up talking to somebody and what they're saying seems so far off base it just doesn't even make sense to us it's as though you're from different centuries speaking to each other and i think i think that there are a number of ways that we really have to approach those sorts of scenarios in particular you know really affirming that people have the right to make their own choices disarms a lot of the us versus them dynamic that can come up that hey i'm on your team you get to make up your mind let's let's share with each other what we know um and also yeah go ahead i i really relate this line of of thinking and you know, respecting people, because I think that's what misinformation, or I think even more commonly disinformation, I see there's two qualities. There's the quality of, um, or, or it's almost, it's almost no information. So it starts with, well, do we really know how many people died from a COVID-19 vaccine? Right. And it's like, you can't play a science-based argument. And then they're like, I'm going to, I'm going to create, like, you have this, what I call a Winnie the Pooh statement where you're like, I didn't even think about thinking. And so I think that I want to see what you think about how I perceive this is that misinformation spreaders create this question of, you know, I, I, I get all those emails that I'm sure you get from all these revealed, uh, all these people and, and their emails start with, do you feel tired today? And it's like, I do feel tired today. I have a solution for you, right? You're laughing because mm-hmm. the solution is, so it's, it's this disinformation, but they create that space. I didn't think about, I have this problem. And, mm-hmm. and this is a classic, very successful marketing technique. So how do we appropriately listen to things that are sometimes disgusting, right? Uh, and and get people on the same page. And I like your thought about, hey, we all care about people dying. Let's talk about how we prevent people dying. We have, sounds like we have different things, ways we think about it. What, what do you think about that? Like creating the space and, and finding agreement. You know, one thing I always um, tell people to start with doing is sort of be aware of the language that people use within their bubbles, right? So if if we're talking about parental rights, if we're talking about freedom, if, you know, if we're talking about mandates, you know, and all of that being forced language, we're probably in a particular bubble. If we're talking about, you know, greater good, and if we're talking about, you know, helping each other out and these like soft feeling sorts of language, then we're probably in an entirely different bubble. And if, 
I, I think it's really important to honestly like take a breath. And if you think about it, there's nothing inherently better or worse than any of those bubbles, except that the misinformation is being spread wickedly through through some of them. And so I think what I always try to do is tell people to try to like pop the bubble by using bubble neutral language, right? Get outside the bubble. And that's why, you know, it, you know, ultimately you get to decide it's your decision. It's your choice. Those are words I use instead of rights and freedom. Um, because it's different. I don't like the word mandate. I like to say, you know, as a condition of your employment, you might have to do this. And then you have to decide whether or not your philosophy on vaccines, it supersedes your enjoyment of your job. So, you know, that that's sort of like getting outside of those. I think that a lot of time misinformation spreads. I don't think. I know that a lot of time misinformation spreads when people feel disempowered. And so I think helping to empower people does make a difference. And, uh, and when people are empowered and um, the other thing that we try to do at Voices for Vaccines is not just debunk misinformation, but to give people framework understandings of science. So if someone says to me, for example, I had a woman who started having joint pain and uh, she was connecting it to the vaccine. And I said, okay, well, I can reasonably understand why you're having joint pain. And I'll say too, this is a legitimately hesitant person who wants to be assuaged, who really wants to feel good about vaccines, but is having all sorts of doubts tossed at her from within her bubble. And so, you know, I said, let's look at how the vaccine works. You know, we talked about how when the vaccine goes into your arm, that it's delivered in a little globule, um, the mRNA goes to your cells and says, hey, cells, what do you think about like making some of these spike proteins? And what a lot of people don't realize is that when the vaccine is put in your arm, for people listening at home, I'm, I'm pointing to my arm, that it talks to those cells there. It's like, hey, deltoid muscle cells. And then the deltoid muscle cells, which of course are attached to your deltoid, make the spike proteins on the outside of those cells. We don't have spike proteins roaming about your body. We don't have, you know, polyethylene glycol ping-ponging around everywhere. mRNA isn't like going nuts everywhere. Everything's sort of taken care of at that point. And what happens next is up to your body. Your body deciding to make those spike proteins, but also then to learn how to handle those spike, spike proteins and dispose of them is your body, it's not the vaccine. And so if we can give people that framework and say, so within that framework, what's your concern about the vaccine? And uh, this woman's was that maybe what had gone on was that she had sort of an autoimmune thing that was triggered by the inflammatory immune system process. And then she came up with on her own and it probably would have been if I had gotten COVID too. And I said, okay, well, I think now we go talk to your doctor and, and figure this out and get this resolved for yourself so that you can stop being in pain. But 
what happens when we give people a framework of understanding is that the next time they get a piece of misinformation because there will be that next time there will be that email that says you know does dairy upset your tummy now it's all the vaccines they can say but wait that doesn't make sense because what the vaccine is doing here how would that affect how i process dairy and they can think themselves through it and then they are thus inoculated against misinformation so I think we have to do a lot less of what I call the uh, what and a lot more of the how. And if, if you will, I'd like to just give you one example that's sort of old school, going back to the days of vaccines and autism. If you go to certain public health sites and look up vaccines and autism, they'll say vaccines don't cause autism. Here are the studies. Well, if you go to an anti-vaccine site and say to yourself, do vaccines cause autism? They'll say, they sure do. Here's 255 studies that we've found. And some of them are, they're really reaching. Some of them are bad studies. Some of them are just, they don't make sense. But there's a list of them. Now, if you're a regular person like me, the likelihood of you going through and reading even more than one of those studies is about zero percent so you're just looking at lists competing lists and honestly the anti-vaccine list is longer but if you go to someone and you say do vaccines cause autism and they say well what we know about autism right now is that it affects the front part of the brain where all of the cells are in place before a person's born and when we look at the brains of an autistic person versus the brains of a, a neurotypical person, we see that there's a sort of disorganization among those cells in an autistic person. Those cells really can't get reorganized after birth. So what, what we know right now is that autism has strong genetic basis. And so when we're asking about vaccines, we have to think, how would a vaccine do that? And there isn't a really honest way of saying that a vaccine could do that after having that information. There are lots of dishonest ways, right? They, they say, oh, it's because the mother got a flu shot at, at, at when she was pregnant. And then we can go through and talk about like, you know, placenta and all that. But um, there's, there's very little that can sway a person once they understand exactly how something works. And from my work with people who used to be very strident anti-vaxxers, it was that one thing that they knew couldn't be true, that didn't comport with science, that made them change their minds. Sorry, I went on for quite a while there. <laughs> no, that's okay. That was a very excellent story. Like, it's, it's the fear and the emotion of it all that really drive people to like find something that kind of reinforces what they heard and what they believe in. So if you're going to these anti-vax sites and you're like, there it is, it says so it's the truth. But like, if someone's like, this proves it, like this proves that for example, vaccines cause autism, which we know they don't, but they found this study that reinforces their belief and makes them feel better. It really just kind of like escalates the situation where like you said, Karen, if we can like sit down and explain, this is what happens. This happens before you're born, your brain 
is already forming before you even get a vaccine in your body. And it just makes more sense. So if you can like sit down and have that time to explain to someone what we know and what we know now with science, it makes them feel a lot more comfortable kind of shifting from maybe that like hesitant or unsure part of themselves to being more confident and more like in control of what they're thinking. And I think that people do react a lot to the fear and emotion of it all, especially with everything going on in the world now and what we've experienced in the past so many years that your emotion drives you quite a bit. And it's sometimes it's hard to overcome that. But if you have someone supporting you and kind of guiding you and helping you understand your fear and kind of relate it, it makes it a lot easier. Absolutely. And to go back to like the vaccine narrative, like a lot of people were very, very afraid of the vaccine. My parents never listened to me for medical advice. Absolutely never. I've been in pharmacy school. I'm in my sixth year. I can tell them everything I want. My sister's a nurse. She can tell my parents everything. And they don't quite understand any recommendation or they're like, no, no, I'll just do this. I'll be fine. But when it came to the vaccine, it was nice to have my parents be like, oh, Sabrina, what do you think about this? How do you feel about this? Should I get a vaccine? Can you help me schedule an appointment? When am I eligible? It was nice to be a resource for my parents who at first were honestly a little hesitant. They were like, well, I don't know anything about this vaccine. They're making it in like six months. What do we know? How can this be like working? This has to be like just some simple SIBO or something. And like, I was able to sit down and talk to my parents about it. I had a very well-timed elective with Dr. Bratberg about vaccines where we learned everything we possibly could about COVID vaccines in a semester um, while they were developing it. So it was nice to be able to sit down and be that resource for my parents and like make them feel more confident in the vaccine because they had never had any issues with vaccines in the past. I think it's just because it was new and scary and people don't like change and we had a lot of changes in the past couple of years. So it's important to create that shift from like vaccine hesitancy to vaccine confidence. And I think that's something that you guys do very well at Voices for Vaccines. And it's really nice to see you put all this information out there to make people feel more confident about it. Yeah, thank you. It's funny, I just, hearing you talk, I just made the connection of Voices for Vaccines is literally what you've just talked about in talking to people who are who lack confidence or who are hesitant, right? It's, you know, we, we want to hear what you have. And I, and in the years I've taught this vaccines, my class called Communicating Vaccines, we reference your site all the time and the weekly emails you send out about here's what's happening with vaccine misinformation and the way that you or your team analyze these sort of stories, that became something we talked about on our weekly talk. Oh, here's this fertility argument. And we were lucky enough to have a, a pharmacist who was about to have a baby talk about her COVID story, which was her grandfather died of COVID and her mom almost died of COVID. She's got another kid. She's pregnant. And she's like, I still think this is the best thing for me with limited information at that time. And now we know a lot more, but it, it just was so it, it was safety and pregnancy, I think was, was the other, was the issue there. But to have somebody with their own experience saying that. And what I like about your website is the people who you just mentioned it before, a person who was very, very anti-vax. And there was that one thing that was like, this is improbable. 
And I think that's when you talk about spending time with people or what pharmacists can do even in a short period of time, the regimen really is just, and I just said to Sabrina earlier today, is I just teach my students to say, ask the question, plant the seed. They'll walk out of the store. They'll not think anything of it. They didn't expect to have a conversation. They didn't feel like they had a voice to have a conversation. But the next time they come in, they'll say, oh, you know, you planted that seed about maybe I should get my booster or maybe I'm at risk. And then they, and once you start that conversation, you'll be fine. Uh, or, or at least, at least you've started the conversation. So I think that's, I think that's fascinating. And I also loved what you said in like your introduction of yourself saying like, we're normal people promoting vaccines. And that also helps people like, you're just like another person who's like, no, I did my research. And now in this world of promoting vaccines, and I know all the good that they do for people and society and public health, and what we can do to protect each other. Because say that child in the daycare actually did get their chicken pox vaccine, your child may not have been exposed and gotten the chicken pox or put your 10 day old baby at risk. Like it's very scary. But now that we have all these tools to have this like immunity as a society, it's really nice to see people promoting that. Even if, like you said, we're just regular people, but that's not true. You're not a regular person. You're doing great work. Thank you. Yeah. And you know, what we've seen over the last two years actually is that more and more people are relying on their personal networks of family and friends to talk about vaccines. What we've really been seeing in the last two years, especially, is that people are relying more and more on their personal networks of family and friends to give recommendations or provide information on health matters, but especially on vaccination. It's really more important than ever that we handle these conversations carefully, because we're not just chatting anymore, but we're honestly doing things for each other that can affect people's long-term health and well-being. And so I think that's really where, you know, being a regular person, even if you're a pharmacist, in some manner of your life, someone sees you as just another regular person. And to have those regular person conversations is super important. And you're definitely right. Like having those conversations just as like, another person or another family member, it means a lot because it can impact your thoughts and your beliefs. And it just makes it easier for us to like spread this positive and credible information around. So Karen, can you tell our viewers where they can find credible information about vaccines? Right. So of course we have our website, which is voicesforvaccines.org. A lot of this stuff I've been talking about as far as explaining how vaccines work, we have a number of explanations on those under the science tab on voicesforvaccines.org. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter that uh, Dr. Bratberg referenced, and you can find us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all sorts of places, and especially on any place where you get your podcasts, except for Spotify um, or VaxTalk.org. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a whole other podcast about the podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a meta podcast. <laughs> the meta podcast podcast. Thank you for sharing that. And just another reminder to everyone, you have to kind of evaluate if you're vaccinated 
if your like vaccine information is credible. So you want to make sure you know like who manages that information and like where the source of that information is coming from and if it's reviewed before it actually gets posted. So there's still a lot of red flags when it comes to looking at information online or in social media. Like if you don't know who posted it or if there's a conflict of interest or if it's outdated or boasting some miracle cure, there's a lot of red flags that you can kind of pick up on and kind of look at if you're looking at information from an outside source or online or social media. And it's important to like kind of like look at everything as a whole before you're kind of judging that information. And it's important for everyone to realize that there is misinformation spread about, but what we can do as people, regular people or people as a society is kind of use our best judgment and find what we can that is truthful and spread that information to our friends and family and everyone to make sure we're getting positive information about. So just to go over, the regimen for correcting vaccine misinformation includes pharmacists and people rebuilding trust in medicine and helping identify credible sources for vaccine information. We want to thank you all for listening today. And be sure to find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts here at The Regimen. And you can find out about new episodes every week at PharmD Pub Health on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so much for joining us today, Karen. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you. Good to see you.